On the weekend of the 22nd of October, the Barbican Centre will once again play host to the Battle of Ideas Festival. The weekend-long event will feature two days of high-level, thought-provoking public debate, and within that, a variety of topics will be discussed within a variety of different formats of discussion. And with this mini-series, what we're hoping to do is showcase some of the topics covered and the people who will be covering them. First up... Hello. Hi, Tamandra, it's Max. Hi, oh, hi, are you downstairs? I am, I'm outside. I'm yes, I'll come and find you. Alright, thank you. It's Tamandra Harkness, who amongst other things will be talking about her latest book, Big Data Does Size Matter. So how would you introduce yourself? What would be your, your title? I would probably say I was a writer and broadcaster and sometimes a comedian. <laughs> what? <laughs> I know, it's really it, it, it's really hard to get the balance between underselling yourself and sounding really wanky. <laughs> So before we get into your book, which will be featured in this year's <laughs> Battle of Ideas Festival at the Barbican, um, what made you want to write this book? I have been interested in big data for about five or six years because, well, it, two reasons really. It's quite an odd intersection for me because I am quite interested in maths, just because I find the patterns of it really lovely and fascinating. And in fact, I'm studying maths with the Open University, which started off really just being for fun. But also I started noticing that people were talking about first statistics and then big data in this way that it was going to be this amazing new thing and change everything. And initially, especially with statistics, everybody just suddenly got into, oh, let's look at the infographics in the newspapers and the, and the graphs. And I thought, well, this is odd because I love this stuff, but that's because I love maths. And I know for a fact you don't all love maths like I do. So why are you so impressed and excited by it? And then it kind of morphed into this big data thing. All these people going, oh, big data is going to change everything and it's amazing and look what these algorithms can do and, and look what you can learn from data. And half of me is thinking, well, that's great because you can actually learn a hell of a lot from data and analysing it mathematically and using really powerful computers to find the patterns. But... I don't think that's why you're all so excited about this. I think there's something else going on that it's got this supposed magical quality that it's going to change everything precisely because you don't understand it. That it's got this rather mystical quality. So I got interested in it kind of from both points of view. One, from the genuine, actually, you can do a hell of a lot with this stuff. And then from the other side, with a more critical, mm, but why... Why look here? <laughs> That's my constant question in life is, yes, but why are you looking here? And because people don't really understand how it works, suddenly it's this great thing that's going to change everything. And I think sometimes it says more about what we lack in other aspects of society than about what you can actually do with it. 
I'm stressed, it's been a hard day at work, I don't have time to go to the supermarket. What easier way to get your groceries than via the net? We know from research that's been conducted that about 20% of the population is supposedly time-starved and don't have the time to go out and do their food shopping. Therefore, we wanted to trial with ICL a service that made it easy for those people to order food while they're at work. Companies are relocating out of towns, so they're not close to supermarkets. Flexi time is being uh, worked, people are working later into the evenings, and it's simply not convenient for them to get to a supermarket. My order transfers to the supermarket and an assistant loads up the trolley with all the goodies I've selected. Then, just a couple of hours later, it appears on Channel One's doorstep in Charlotte Street for my collection. Waitrose say anything is possible. Internet shoppers can even specify... Because this is something I've always kind of had a problem with, and it sounds like it's why you wrote the book. What, what is big data, and what makes it different from small or medium-sized data? <laughs> Does size matter, in fact? Okay, I, w I was trying to get a handle on this for myself, and part of it is simply the scale of it, which is escalating so fast that it doesn't really make sense to try and put a number on it. But there's also other aspects about it which genuinely make it more powerful and useful. And um, and I managed to crunch them into a backronym. I managed to use DATA to, to sum up the, the kind of the other four aspects. So D is for different dimensions that you can put together different data sets. So for example, you could put the brain scans together with say people's medical records and postcodes of where they'd lived and the weather reports of those postcodes so you get different dimensions of their lives and so I was speaking to another brain scientist Professor Paul Matthews and he was saying that's actually what distinguishes big data from just large data just rubbing lots of data is precisely that you, you don't just have a thousand brain scans instead of 20 you have all the different types of data and by putting them together you can ask different questions than what the original people who collected the data were asking. It's stuff that's collected automatically. Nobody has had to go out with a clipboard and collect it. Every time you do something with your mobile phone or book something online, it just automatically collects the data by default. It's like it's easier to collect it than not collect it. So it's just kind of piling up in warehouses. Then there's the time aspect. It's coming in almost in real time. And because of that, you can look for patterns through time and project them into the future and so you can use it to predict the future you can say if this carries on then this time pattern will do this and therefore I think the future will look like that and then there's a spare A so I use that for AI for artificial intelligence because a lot of the software that's analyzing the data is not just a glorified calculator it may be machine learning it may be a computer that you have never given a definition of so, for example, if you wanted to say, tell me which of these brain scans are male and which are female, instead of you telling it how to tell the difference, you would just say, here's 500 brain scans from women, here are 500 brain scans from men. Okay, now that's your training data set. Uh, now I'm going to give you another thousand and correct you when you go wrong. And then the machine makes its own rules. And obviously, this means that they can often do things better than humans can when it comes to really subtle sorting tasks. Machines are getting to the stage where they're as good as people or even sometimes better if it's very complex. 
But the downside of that is you don't necessarily know what rules they're applying. So then you find it applied to human lives, like who's more likely to re-offend? So who do you want to send to jail? Or who's more likely to stay in this job? So who should you give a job interview to? And if you don't know the criteria the machine is applying, you don't really know whether that's fair and you can't necessarily appeal if it doesn't go in your favour. a brand new look tonight at the next wave in crime fighting. It sounds like something from movies about psychic powers. A police force able to figure out what criminals are going to do in advance. In one California city, the future of policing is now. ABC's Abby Boudreaux is in Santa Cruz. Do you think, you know, obviously this is very rich and there's a lot of different dimensions. Do you think that it can truly encapsulate the sort of complexity of the human being well no of course not <laughs> but that's what people assume it's doing right that's why people have put so much time and money into it because that's essentially what they're doing they're capturing people's behaviors yes yeah well that, it's interesting you see you use that word of behaviors because i well, i think there's two things w one is that you can capture aspects of people very well yes and, and especially if you're zooming out, if you're looking at a mass of people, if you wanted to look at the behaviour of London commuters and where we're going to go when, then you get really useful information from the fact that you've got all historic data from people's Oyster cards. And then you could put that together with the weather and say, oh, look, it's going to start raining at this time. Historically, we know that will mean there'll be a rush on these trains, the buses will be delayed, whatever, whatever. Incredibly useful to be able to do that. As soon as you start to zoom into individuals, I think it's much more tricky because you can say on average that so many people will be doing this, but to look at an individual person and say, oh, there's a 65% chance you'll do this. Yeah, it's great for if you're Amazon trying to sell somebody a book because, well, if you're wrong, you're wrong. But if you're right, they'll buy the book. But if you're trying to look at something more serious, like are you going to stay in a job or are you going to commit a crime? then I think it's, it's very dangerous to try and look at an individual and say, we can say what you're going to do. And part of that is because, to come back to the idea of behaviour, is if you look from the outside at what people do, now some people argue this gives you a more truthful idea about people than what they say, because you can survey people and they'll tell you something, but if you watch what they do, that might be different. If, if you talk to somebody and ask them questions, what you're engaging with is their subjective self. And each of us has a subjective self that wants things and decides things and thinks things and changes our mind. And big data is not good at measuring that. It's good at measuring the kind of the external things that we do. And yeah, possibly what we say, what we tweet, all that kind of thing. Uh, it can measure our vital signs. It can measure your heartbeat and and where you go and how you walk and and all these kind of outward signs of what you do. But what it can't get is your inner self and the subjective processes of your life. And I think that the popularity of big data sits only too well with 
the current thinking about human beings as well you know maybe we are just biological machines and maybe we are just glorified animals and the same way that you could study a rat by putting it in a maze and seeing what it does you can do the same to human beings and that's enough and so I don't think it's the fault of big data and the technology and the people who do it I think it's more that it sits only too comfortably in a view of humanity that was already becoming popular the hungry animal remains active, but as the satiated one becomes adapted to the new environment, he settles down and becomes inactive. The hungry rat is active. He stands up near the bar, but just misses it. The correct response of pressing the bar cannot be rewarded and learned until it occurs. Stands up near the bar, presses it, but since he does not see the pellet and the food cup, he is not rewarded. Now he finds the pellet and is rewarded for approaching the food cup. From now on, he confines more of his activity to the region of the food dish. And so that, that is obviously, you know, one of the dangers of it, this sort of reductionist approach, I suppose, to the individual. What are, what are some of the other, because you do, it, it does seem to get quite a lot of bad press, big data. What are some of the other things that people are concerned about? Well, obviously, there's the privacy aspect, which comes up and is you know, very topical at the moment because the government is, again, discussing the Investigatory Powers Bill, which would let the government look at a lot of our data, our communications especially. And each of us has unique patterns in our lives, which up till now hasn't really been a problem in terms of privacy because nobody has access to all of it. But now it's so easy to get bits of information that on their own are innocent and put them together and, and there you have a profile of an individual person. So I think it's reasonable to worry about privacy and think, well, you can't really put the, put the genie back in the bottle. The data is going to be out there and it's also it's really, really useful. But we do need to think about what control do we have over how our data is used and who uses it and what for. But again, part of that comes down to the fact that I think we've slightly lost track of why privacy is important. There's a bit of an attitude of, well, what have we got to hide? You know, they say, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear. And I say, if you've got nothing to hide, you haven't really lived. <laughs> yeah, everybody should have something to hide. Not from everybody, but from somebody. And that's that's what privacy is about, really. It's not that you hide things from everybody, but you decide who who gets to see them. You know, do you want your parents and your boss and the nosy neighbours to know everything that your friends know? Probably not. And have you, for you personally, going on this journey and writing this book, has your sort of... Um, I mean, I'm sure it has your sort of opinions and worries and anxieties about this kind of thing. How has that changed throughout the process of writing the book? Or were they already there in the first place? I'm kind of, I accept that maybe the government should have access to things like emails and phone calls in order to protect us from a terrorist attack. But, but if it comes to using those same powers for really trivial things like getting the sources of a journalist or local authorities 
snooping on parents to find out whether they really live at that address or they're just trying to get their kid into a school, then I think, well, that's completely disproportionate use of intrusive powers. You know, you you shouldn't have to really justify if you're going to breach somebody's privacy. So I, I do think it's more important to get into those public discussions and making collective decisions. You can't you can't just use technological means to solve all these problems any more than all the problems come from the technology. It's, it's not just about the technology. It's designed and made by people and it's used by people. You know, the, the problem is is between you and the other people. It's not, it's, a machine is just a machine. And people say the same when they say, oh, will robots take your jobs? Like, no, the robot's not going to take your job. A, a human being might build a robot and then decide they don't need you to do your job anymore. But the robot's not going to do anything. The, ro- the robot's going to do what we decide we want it to do. predict the weather and even a person's shopping habits but what about predicting where a criminal might strike next crime is not random you can actually predict some of the things that people will do it's not exactly as futuristic as the sci-fi thriller minority report where cops picked up criminals before they committed their crimes set up a perimeter until we're on route Police in Santa Cruz, California, are getting closer to the sci-fi future using this algorithm, a complicated math equation similar to the one that predicts earthquake aftershocks to predict crime. Do you think there is an aversion within, say, our sort of modern-day societies for this kind of discourse to actually discuss things like this? Because you don't hear people talking about the, the, the details of things like big data, and so therefore you get this binary-like no, it shouldn't do it, or yeah, it's great, it, you know, it means I can get an Uber. It, is this sort of binary kind of thing, do you think that's a result because people don't really, or aren't interested in talking about it, or aren't interested in the ins and outs of it, the sort of grayscale in between? I think it's partly that people feel they don't understand because it's technology, and therefore people assume that they, they wouldn't understand how it works. So they don't really have any option and they just have to go, oh, well, yeah, (laughs) take it or leave it. (laughs) Sign up or don't get the service. It's also true, though, that because technology companies kind of make their own rules, it is a bit of a take it or leave it. You know, you want to be on Facebook, then you accept their, their privacy settings and what they do with your data. And you just have to remember that because it's free, that means it's you and your data that are the product. So I think it's it, it's partly that we're not offered the choice very often. It's partly that people feel a bit intimidated that it's a very technological thing and they wouldn't understand it. I think it's probably partly also just that we have not been very good about talking about the, the, these bigger questions like why is privacy important, what's it for, or... You know, who should be in control of who knows what about me? Or is it reasonable to look at an entire population and make general conclusions about why people do things and then 
intervene in those populations without really consulting them. So, for example, if you if you think that it, a certain subpopulation is more likely to turn to crime, then, well, what do you do about that? You might find things that are associated with them turning to crime and go, OK, well, you know, because of that, we're going to go and do something about that. Or you might say, well, that because of that, every individual in this subpopulation, we're going to go and intervene and keep an eye on them because there is a 60% chance they will turn to crime or whatever. So I think we've become very bad about having those bigger conversations about, well, what, what should you do if there's a social problem? Should you intervene in families? Should you ask what the causes are? Should you try and look more broadly at society? And sometimes big data can seem like a, a shortcut that instead of having to have those really difficult, complicated conversations about what causes one thing to happen and not another, you go, oh, well, here's a smart solution. Here's a computer that's much cleverer than us. And that can find these associations and therefore that can tell us what to do. So... Just a bit lazy, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's understandable. I mean, some of these problems are very complex and intractable. And if somebody says, oh, we've got a programme that has had a shown you a 10% reduction in crime, for example... You can see it's really appealing. You can see why you might go for that. Whether they are as effective as they say is, is one question. Whether they're based on reasonable principles is, is another question. So it's understandable, but yeah, I think it's wrong. <laughs> I don't think technology can solve social problems as a rule. Things like the battle of ideas that, that sort of encourage this kind of discourse about whether it's big data or politics or AI or whatever it is. I mean, <clears throat> why do you think that they're so important? And you've kind of already answered it, but... <laughs> Things like the battle of ideas and other form, forums where you can actually debate the ideas in a very general audience rather than saying, oh, you know, if you work in big data, you should come and have this, but a genuinely public forum where you can say well where is this going why does it matter are we happy about this are, are really important because I do think w without having those bigger conversations and trying to get to grips with why things happen how things work and what are the choices that we face and which way we want to go then no amount of clever technology is going to improve our lives except in the most trivial superficial ways i mean the big data is great at doing the same thing more efficiently it it's really great at doing the same thing with less or, or maybe less with less a, a smart city is you know it's great to be smooth running and efficient but it doesn't answer the question fundamentally of what kind of city do you want to live in? What kind of life do you want to have? How should it be run? On whose behalf should it be run? Who should have a say in it? It doesn't answer any of those questions. And, and that's exactly why you need public debate to start having those discussions in public. And yeah, come to some... <laughs> 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 
these bloody humans moving around and we're trying to have a nice quiet discussion about the importance of public discussion. Ignorant <laughs> <laughs> humans. To find out more about the festival, head over to www.battleofideas.org.uk.